Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And as always, we have a very interesting guest today with me is my fellow Dutchman, Kip Schiphorst. And Kip is a Chinese and Arabic open source intelligence consultant slash instructor, focusing on helping online researchers uh, know your customer, compliance investigators, academics, and business professionals. Make better use of online Chinese and Arabic sources. I know that recently he also started with Russian, I believe. Kip, thank you so much. Uh, it's a little bit weird for us speaking in English because normally we speak Dutch with each other. But thank you so much for coming. Happy you're here. Hey, Ahmed, thank you so much for the introduction. I'm also happy to be here. It's weird that we're both speaking in English. And it's also interesting. I listened to your former podcast. I understood that you're, you just started with Russian as well. So I'd be happy to hear uh, what techniques you use for that. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Good question. I don't get questions often when I do the podcast, but yeah, we can get into that. But can you tell me a little bit more about obviously your bio, but you know, how you started and, and what your journey was like? Yeah. So my, I've been in OSINT not for so very long. And the, the, the route I took to get here is, is not a logical one, just like Everything else uh, in my short history, it's uh, it's not very logical. I actually grew up in Switzerland as a as an expat kid. Uh, actually, I'm still growing up, <laughs> but I I lived on a uh, no, I live on a uh, I lived on a small on a small hill in Switzerland until I was 18, and really idyllic, you know, everything with the the outdoors, the fresh air, and everything, lots of snow and skiing and everything, but all that good stuff. Living the expat life in the west of Switzerland. So I grew up with uh, several languages around me. So quickly discovered I had a knack for languages and that's it. All the rest of school was garbage, but languages were good. And I kind of went against the grain because what most people do, well, what most people do in Switzerland is not join the army, even if there is an army. People don't do that or the military rather. And I really wanted to do that when I was 18. I had an itch I didn't know how to scratch it, but I knew I, I had to move or, or be active or do some something. So being a Dutch national, I chose to uh, go to the Netherlands in 1997 and then uh, applied to go for the, to join the Marine Corps in, uh, in 1997 and then did that for about 17 years, did all the things I wanted to do. They had nothing to do with the internet or, or OSINT or, or that kind of stuff. Uh, it was all the things I needed to do as a young guy and as an older guy too. So uh, all the active things, the deployments, uh, going to different continents, uh, specialized uh, myself in uh, long range reconnaissance, which was really what I what I like to do. And then uh, in specialized myself into jo uh, jungle warfare instruction, which was what I actually was planning to do for a longer time. But my career ended in 2012 when I uh, got injured at work. A bad day at the office <laughs> during a, a shooting incident. Then, yeah, not being able to continue doing that that job, I uh, decided to use my brain and went to university and studied uh, sonology or China studies in uh, in Leiden University in the Netherlands. So I studied everything about the country, the language, classical Chinese, uh, economics, politics, of course, uh, the long history. Did an awesome minor in uh, Chinese music, which was my, my highest grade ever. I wasn't the best student, but I, I passed everything. That was a great minor. Pretty tough, tough uh, study, very high attrition rate. I spent some time in China studying, and then I uh, spent some time in Taiwan studying. And it's actually during that study that I kind of thought about ways to find information quicker because I was struggling finding the correct information in, in Dutch, English, and in Chinese online to write my essays and things. And I, I first thought it was a due to my age because I was 34 when I went to university, but asked a bit around me and I saw my classmates who were all 18, 19, 20-year-olds uh, struggled, struggled with the same stuff. And I kind of made a mental note of that, maybe trying to develop that in the future, how to find information online in, in Chinese and then subsequently in other foreign languages, which brought me into, yeah, iIntelligence, the Swiss company I, I work for nowadays, been doing so for about two years. And I specialize indeed uh, in teaching people who don't speak Chinese how to find information in that language online. And uh, since last year, Arabic as well. I self-taught myself Arabic during my time in the Marine Corps because I thought it might be a, a useful tool. 
So the language part of the brain works well. The numbers part is an absolute disaster. But I'll take languages over numbers any day of the week. Uh, Amen. So I've been working for Intelligent for about two and a half years. It's been great. And uh, hopefully maybe uh, next year add add Russian to the curriculum of languages I, I can kind of speak. Luckily, we have a colleague who just started giving the uh, the Russian OSINT course. So it's the same as the, the Arabic one or the Chinese one. Funny story, actually, last year in January, I thought, okay, it's time to uh, learn a new language. So I started with Japanese just for fun. Wow. As a hobby. And then, uh, and, and then this guy, this, this guy decides to invade Ukraine. And I thought, <laughs> I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to park Japanese for a few months or years and, and sink my teeth into, uh, the other language. So yeah, there you go. Fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And thanks. I think you can kind of guess what I'm going to ask, but if you don't mind and, and if you don't want to, you know, there's no problem, but you said like you had to stop your time in the military because of a shooting incident. Is there something you can get into and what happened? Yeah, sure. So most people, when I say this, people assume it was in the Middle East or Afghanistan. So it wasn't there. I did go to, uh, to Iraq and uh, nothing happened. Uh, uh, there, it actually happened on the tropical island of Aruba during a CQB, a, a close quarter battles exercise. Uh, very simply, the the my colleague, my teammate behind me, uh, shot me by accident during a live fire training. So I took uh, wow. I took one round at the top of my back and one in my upper right leg. Some people like to say butt, but I prefer to say upper right leg. <laughs> Uh, it sounds a bit less uh, less cheeky, but uh, now a very bad day, uh, arterial bleeding, and uh, yeah, almost uh, almost uh, lost my life on that day. So that wow. kind of uh, changed my uh, my career path. Crazy, but but now you're you're okay. I'm for I've, I feel very good, but I, there's some things I just can't can't do, or some things uh, I got to do a bit differently in mm-hmm. the way I, uh, I I hop in a car or the way I pull on my socks or. Or other stuff. I wasn't the most flexible guy uh, before, but no, certainly not. Mm. Uh, but I'm very blessed to still be able to do the things, uh, most of the things I want to do. Some things I just can't do anymore. But I'm very fortunate, especially when you, when I, I know, compare that to some of the uh, the guys and girls I was with at the military hospital that mm. came back from uh, uh, from IED blasts, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Comparing that, but it put it's it's a it's good to put you in check and to compare that. It can always be worse. It doesn't make it nice, but it can always be worse. But there were times that it wasn't that, yeah, it felt pretty crappy, the situation. Yeah, was it. absolutely. Compared to others, I was, and I was extremely lucky too. I mean, a bit higher. The one I got in my back just hit 10, 10 centimeters under the edge of a uh, Kevlar plate. So that, that kind of stopped, uh, that stopped the bullet pretty well. The one uh, I got in my leg actually got a, uh, severed the artery, so catastrophic bleeding and everything. And uh, mm-hmm. the funny thing is, Ahmed is the, the guys that were around me. This some of them told me afterwards when they saw me fall down, they actually thought it was an exercise because I had a habit of every training I was planning and executing with my team. I always had you know medical surprises for people. You know, tell people, hey. I tell one guy, hey, uh, after 10 minutes, let yourself fall down and just clutch your lungs as if you're in pain. And the guys around me didn't react immediately because some of them actually thought, oh, here we go again, a medical protocol just at the end of the day. So that in, it, it looked pretty realistic. So yeah. the, the special effects were, were pretty good. And then they, they had to, yeah, they had to work on me. And they, yeah, without them, I, I wouldn't have been here. Wouldn't be, be here. Well, you trained them well then. To respond, I, I trained them a lot in tactics and how to re- react logistically with the uh, medical problems when we're on, when, if we were to to have such a thing as a, a team leader. Uh, but we had some great medics and and guys and marines in a, within the unit to to uh, to cross train each other in case they get something that everybody knows sort of how to stabilize wounds and everything. And yeah. they, they did a great job. I, I was able to do a little bit on myself. But then they took over and the, the, yeah, they, they had to improvise a lot because it was kind of a remote location. But uh, yeah, so it was a it was a special day at the office. Let's put it that way. Crazy. Well, you know, good that you're here and 
I have a friend who always says, one uh, he like tries to like make problems not as big, and he always says, you know, it's better than a kick in the teeth. But I don't know if I would, maybe I would take a kick in the teeth over this. I would say, that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's. I, I will say that I w- there, there's lots of luck on my side that helped me. Uh, I, I think definitely one other thing that really helped is just being able to crack jokes about it mm. after. Of course, it wasn't very funny during. It's mm-hmm. actually a pretty terrifying experience, but uh, it's like a yeah, kind of dark humor you play in as uh, as Marines or how you you uh, you talk to each other or take the Mickey out of each other, and that, that kind of helps in mental survival a bit a lot actually. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, cannot imagine uh, how that must have felt going through that, but you know, I'm happy you're here. It was it was Ahmed. It was literally wait for it a pain in the ass. <laughs> But pun intended. Uh, all right. <laughs> um, after your time in the military, you you pivoted towards um, Chinese studies. Why, why Chinese studies? I'll go back a little bit before before everything happened in Iraq in two thousand and three. I, I was already in the Marines for a few years, and I thought, well, you know, might as well. I was pretty good at languages, and I used lots of languages during the trainings with the French uh, because I'm a French. Uh, my mother tongue is French, actually. Uh, uh, self-taught myself Spanish because we had to go on uh, uh, on deployments in Central America to help out with uh, uh, hurricane relief. And then I thought, well, what's the next challenge, right? I have. Uh, it's not like I have nothing to do. You're very busy as a young Marine, but I thought, you know. I've, I have something that helped me. I have a way to learn languages quickly. So I thought I might just learn Arabic because who knows? I then did that for some time. Uh, and then Iraq, Iraq kicked off in 2003. And I was lucky enough to go there uh, as part of a, in a, in a uh, reconnaissance uh, platoon with the Marines. And I didn't spend too long there compared to, to, uh, to other counterparts. Just about four or five months we were there. And I was able to use Arabic every day and it was just uh so enriching to be able to speak to people and actually you know not being fluent in it but just being able to break the ice with people was was really important for 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 me as or for for the team to to establish uh, communication with people so i did that for some time and then i decided to to dwell into uh to chinese because uh i was in the uh i was fixing myself after i got shot in the, in, a, in a hospital in a medical uh, hospital sorry how do you call it in med- uh, military uh rehab center that's what they call it a fantastic place by the way they 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 do awesome job so i had lots of well i was very busy you know fixing myself uh being operated on again, learning to walk again. So I learned to walk about five or six times. And in a time between, I thought I might just, you know, use some time to, uh, to, to, to think of other things or just keep myself busy. And I thought I might just go ahead and give, uh, give Chinese a go since, uh, that, that might be an interesting, uh, language to learn. So yeah, did that as a hobby first. So, you know, about 10 or 20 words, 50 words a week, just as a hobby, no pressure. And, um, I was uh, offered a chance to go to university by the by the uh, Ministry of Defense. They said, "Well, you can either go and study, or you can come back in the Marines and be an instructor behind a desk." So, you know, being in behind a desk in the Marines—that's not why uh, I joined the Marines. So I thought, oh, "I'm not going to do that." So uh, I actually hesitated a bit, but uh, good friends of mine, uh, fellow Marines who, who also left the Marines and studied. Uh, were able to uh, on a balcony in Amsterdam actually uh, told me, "Hey, listen, you're getting a chance to study, so just go for it." And yeah, uh, found uh, Leiden University. Found they had a China, something covering China, not only the language but uh, everything about the country. So uh, I gave that a go, and it was uh, it was very tough indeed, but uh, yeah, made it through. Very interesting. My uh, one of my sisters actually went to Leiden, studied law there. It's a good school. I, um, a little side story about it. Uh, when I went back to school in, in mm-hmm. London, I had a professor and we, he was explaining about different systems and different countries. And he spoke about the Netherlands and he said that, uh, you know, uh, Leiden was a very conservative school, uh, because, you know, the royals go there. 
And I was like, oh, I don't know what level of conservatism he understands, but I don't think he's that conservative. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was interesting to see like how people see the Netherlands and, uh, um, and also like, what for, what for an American is conservative it doesn't have to be conservative for a Dutch person. Sorry, I, I didn't want to go into the weeds there, but it just triggered a thought about it. All right, so you study Chinese, and where then do you? I mean, you're you're working a language, and I think we we can go into tips uh, a bit more. Is it something that you would recommend to to anybody else? You know, to study Chinese in this manner. That you did, if if they get a chance, yes. But you have to have a click with the language. I j- just to go back a bit. I know where I used to work in some units in the in the Marines. Uh, people were being told, okay, well, hey, you are going to go to language school. You are going to do French, or hey, you are going to go do Spanish. You're going to do Farsi or Arabic. Uh, I, I don't I don't think that works that way. We all have different. We're all we all have different strengths. If you have a knack for languages, by all means do that. But you have you gotta have a knack for languages. If you if you point a finger to me and say, Hey, you're gonna go to another language, algebra school, I don't have a plan to go to algebra, that's not gonna work. I do not have a knack for numbers, so it's 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 not gonna work. So I think it's uh, important to identify uh, it doesn't need to be languages per se, but if you have a knack for something, uh, capitalize on that. For me it was languages. For others, it might be something different. And going back on your question, if you're interested in China and uh, uh, the language, uh, I think it's difficult to study a language and and not study the culture in parallel. Whenever you learn a language, at least from my perspective, I always you know you, you get involved with the history or you get interested by the history, politics, culture, and everything. It's a very solid program. The one in Leiden. There's other uh, universities or faculties that give China studies or sinology, and they they're all they're all very good. Uh, I have to say, there was one parallel I could I could see with my first few weeks uh, studying uh, Chinese in Leiden, with my first few weeks in boot camp being a Marine. Uh, in the Marine Corps, there were days where we'd ask, "Hey, where is that guy? Oh, he he dropped out. He quit uh, this morning. Oh, okay." And then fast forward a couple of years, I'm in uh, I'm at the school benches in Leida, and I would ask around me, hey, where's that student? Oh, they quit. And everything, I thought, okay, where have I seen this? Where, where did I see this before? So it yeah. was uh, it was on. It was, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, it was hardcore, but it was, um, it was very interesting. I, I don't think it's the right match to force yourself to study a language or a culture if you don't have a an interest in it. I had an interest in it, so for me, it, it learned it learned easier. Actually, with everything uh, I had to study or learn, or even nowadays, what I read, I'm only going to read or study things that interest me. Uh, yeah. I have a thick skull, so if it doesn't interest me, I'm <laughs> going to read it, and it's going to be very difficult to learn indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I think that's something a lot of uh, analysts will share with you, the, the knack or, or the interest in languages, at least. I know for me, it's true even though I, I started my career out in, in finance. And it's bizarre. I'm not that good in numbers either. Maybe that's why I didn't like finance. But but yeah, mm-hmm. language is something that, that for me was also very interesting. Also, I think for both me and you, we grew up bilingual. That makes it also, I think, yeah. easier to pick up a language because you apparently, like studies show that you develop certain neural pathways if you if you grow up speaking mm-hmm. dual languages which makes it easier yeah. to you know to uh, move laterally even though chinese from any european languages is is very very different similar with arabic mm-hmm. um so yeah in, in that regard i think that the, i see a lot of similarities and for me growing up obviously you know i i learned dutch and, and grew up in the netherlands and at home spoke somali and somali has yeah, big influences from arabic so and I grew up Muslim, so of course you, you study Arabic, you know, to learn to read the Quran, right? So that was for me the, the first one to right. like, um, to get into and and to understand. So the alphabet and all that stuff was since I was like ten years old, and already I understood then that I was good at languages. 
And I think you don't have to be good at it, but, and that's probably what my next question is going to be, is like, do you have, and I think everybody has, like you asked me in the beginning of the podcast of any systems. So for me, my system is fairly straightforward, but I will go into that after you answer. Do you have any like systems, tricks, tips on how to pick up a new language? I do actually. I'm, I've been thinking about uh, posting something on techniques, but techniques have to match someone. Of course, mm-hmm. if you're in a, uh, a, a university a system, you're going to be given the books you need. But if you don't have that, or if you don't have the luxury to, to study because you're working, there are other ways. But they have to match a bit how you learn. For me, what works best is making an own dictionary and then every new word and every uh, new structure I learn, make an example of a sentence and just repeat, repeat. The best way is is really immersion. And like I said um, before, I mean, uh, four years of study is, is a long investment at university. What you also can do is I think the best way to study a language or just to learn the language is to immerse yourself in a language. I know tons of people that have studies that have worked and studied in China for two, three, four years and just can barely get by in Chinese because they've just stuck to speaking to Italians and Spanish people and French people using English. Right. My progress really kicked off when I was in China and I didn't go except doing workouts with my fellow Dutch students when I was there. Um, I just, focused on speaking as much as possible with the local people, uh, especially not with English-speaking people and just sticking to that language. Immersion is the best, right? So whether it's Arabic or Chinese or, or Russian or Spanish or whatever there is, in some instances, you're better off just going somewhere and invest some time, two, three, four months, whatever it is, and just immerse yourself. Buy your bus tickets, buy your food or noodles, ideally noodles, of course, but... uh <laughs> Just immerse yourself, stay, stay away from English speaking people. And that's, uh, that works the best. And there's, you know, if you can't, and nowadays, of course, we can travel so much more and restrictions are being lifted. There's so many applications and websites and tools out there that can help us study. Uh, I, everybody's been talking about Duolingo. I never used it, but I, I, I dwelled into it a few weeks ago for Russian. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, for me, the ones I like is a Rosetta Stone, which recognizes your voice and tells you, hey, you got to change this or you got to change that or say it again. Uh, but I would say definitely the best there is, is to go to places and speak with people. I mean, if you can't travel because you're bound to local work, then find a place where they speak that language, right? If you're learning Arabic, find a place where uh, where people drink tea and spend some time there, order some food in Arabic, order your coffee in Arabic. If you find a, whatever language there is, try and find a, a local, a local spot where you get, where people uh, uh, speak in that language. The, I think the most difficult tool there is to get is motivation and discipline, but that's with everything, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just sticking with it. It's also good to, if you have a reason to stick with it, right? If it's, I agree. Right. If it's for like, if you want to, uh, if you want to work somewhere or you want to, you want to travel somewhere, you want to pick up a language, those are motivations, right? To, to learn it. And precisely. Right. So for me, it's, it's, it's funny, but my partner is Swedish uh, or Swedish speaking, let's say that. And for the longest time, I was. I've, I've been told, you know, you need to learn the language and speaking Dutch and German, Swedish is not that big difference, right? However, um, mm-hmm. now I realized for myself that the motivation is, is that I want to be able to speak with her family that doesn't really speak English that well. So I instruct mm-hmm. them not to speak English with me. So I just have to, I have to adapt and, um, uh, I'm, I'm feeling it this year. This year I'm gonna, I'm going to grasp it and, uh, and be able to have awesome full conversations and it's not for work or anything, but it's because, you know, I want to be able to speak mm-hmm. to my family, but on, on your, on your tip on immersion, I 100% agree with that. It's the, it's the biggest one. I, I don't think that there is anything better than that. And, but you're in a good position, Ahmed. 
Yeah. I mean, it, sorry to cut you off, but you're in a good position and a bad position. The good position because you're immersed in Sweden. Yeah. But the bad position is uh, um, Swedes are known to be the, some <laughs> of the best English speakers yeah. of Europe, right? Well, they are. Yeah, they are. Uh, they, they they don't really like small talk. So it's it's, it's not like you're just going to like start talking to somebody. But yeah, they, they, they speak English really well, you know, similar to a lot of I'm, other. I'm going to give you a tip, Ahmed. Go ahead. In, in, a, in, a, in a second, I'm going to give you a tip. Next time you go somewhere to buy something, bread, tea, whatever it is you want to drink or eat or do or get done, just pretend you don't speak English. People are going to think that's impossible. But just pre- pretend you can only speak Somali yeah. and Swedish. So obviously, most Swedish people are not going to speak Somali. <laughs> so they're going to have to stick to yeah, their yeah, guns yeah. And, and go for Swedish, man. Immerse yourself in the immersion. One. That's a good point. That's a good point. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that and videotape it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Share that on the, on social media. No, but if I can give a tip on on immersion, so I started my Russian studies as you earlier talked about Chinese, because uh, since I was a teenager, I was always fascinated by Russia and mm-hmm. anything concerning Cold War. My father, when he was in his early 20s. At the time, Somalia was a, I think they call it scientific communism country. It was still a religious country, but they used mainly like socialist government structures. So they were allied with, um, mm-hmm. with the Soviet Union at the time. So my father was sent to Russia for training, where he had training actually with KGB. Oh, interesting. Because he, he was in military intelligence. No kidding. And... Uh, so told me stories and, and, and I was always interested in, in it's going to sound really silly, but I started really getting interested into it after I saw Rambo in, in Afghanistan, right? <laughs> and uh, so I was like, what is this, okay. right? And I started like, I know it's silly, but that's how I got interested in, in, in Russian. And, and I always said to myself, you know, I'm going to learn it. But there was always another language that was more important to learn at uh-huh. the time, you know, so... I have a friend who speaks Russian, Scott, mm-hmm. and he said to me, listen, the way to learn a language, particularly Russian, is, as you said, immersion. Uh-huh. And he studied a while back, years ago, in Minsk, in Belarus. And so, so he, he was able to pick up the language pretty, pretty fast. And he gave me a couple of other tips that didn't really work for me, but I would say, as for like apps, people are interested in that. Like I think Bubble is mm. the best one uh, right. that I have tried. It's it's really good. Okay. Um, so I can say that one. And I know normally we give the tips at the end of the podcast, but you know, now we're on it. Uh, oh, we do? You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fine. But I like for immersion, for me, for Russian, I think people know Fiverr, which is like a... Uh, uh, a website where you marketplace where you can like find experts to design your website or, you know, to build an app for you okay. or something like that. Uh, it's like Upwork and Fiverr. Uh, so what I did mm-hmm. was um, used a bit of OSINT and his tip was find people that can teach you and you can speak with them in Russia. So I went on, on Fiverr and I found seven or six teachers. And for some reason, most of the teachers are, are women, barely any men teaching Russian. So uh-huh. just for people to know that that's kind of like normal. And mm-hmm. so I found teachers, most of them I didn't really have a click with. Uh, and there was one teacher and she was from Ukraine, uh, but her mother was Russian and mm-hmm. she spoke Ukrainian and Russian. And this is so pre the invasion. Well, pre the second invasion, they were invaded in 2014, beginning of last year. So what I did was I had two lessons a week, one like prep and one speaking. And yeah, I, that's how I started. And then she would start the conversation with, Hey, how are you? How was your day? What did you do in Russian? That's the best. Right. And exactly. It was not that expensive. So. Yeah, that's probably the best tip I can give people to do. You can do it for Arabic, you can do it for Chinese, you can do it for Japanese, There's for any language. I mean, I will remember somebody uh, was learning like uh, Hausa, like an African language speaking Central Africa. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they were lifting house on fire or somebody. They found somebody to teach them. And yeah, and, and that's not even a written language, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, um, I think that's just a spoken language, but yeah. Pe- people often go into a language with the goal of thinking, hey, I want to be fluent in that. That That's not going to happen. But if you're into, you know, human relations or having, being able to uh, make a connection with someone, even just showing a person or from a total different continent, country, culture, religion, that you made the effort to get it a bit, to 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 try and get it, that that's going to help you so much. I, I uh, as a silly example, I can give you one. We from uh, Iraq, my time there is that when some patrols went to a village, they would come back. When using an in- interpreter, they would go that with an interpreter, come back and say, uh, "Well, there wasn't so much to report, right?" and I'd go there, and then I was asked, well, okay, well, you want to do this with or without interpreter? I said, no, I'll do it without, right? I'll just, just, uh, put me into it. And let me get, let me get, let me get, get my Arabic on. Went to the same village a few weeks or months after I forgot. And then, you know, just by, by breaking the ice, by, by speaking, just not only speaking, but just showing, you know, respect for the culture and the language and just having them or showing them that you kind of, uh, make an effort to, to find the right words, even if you mess up your pronunciation, even if you mess up the grammar, absolutely, uh, that's that's going to resonate with people. Mm-hmm. I think, hey, he's doing an effort, yeah. and yeah, that, that turned out pretty interesting. We got some very interesting information. There were lots of uh, lots of landmines around that village. There was depleted uranium. They said, oh, whatever you do in this village, just don't go to that tank because it glows at night. No, what, what I meant is, uh, it, it was you know it, there, there was de- depleted uranium, but these kind of things you don't if you if the the team that went or the group that went before I forgot who it was that they they just don't get that even if it's through an interpreter it's just it gets a bit uh, how to say artificial with that filter of an interpreter yeah just by breaking the ice it is you, you get so much already yeah absolutely I think with the interpreter also there are like certain like difficulty layers that most I think a lot of people don't understand like is that interpreter from there are they from the same clan or the same mm-hmm. tribe right yeah these are, oh definitely right? these are things that people don't think about so if the interpreter speaks Arabic it's, it's in a certain true. accent right they're like who is this guy right absolutely or, or they, so so and I, and I you're 100% right in what you're saying because most people when you make an effort uh-huh. in speaking their language they they glow I mean, they start like, they smile all of a sudden, like, oh, wow. Uh, they open up. They open yeah, up, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And even like when I'm like traveling, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when you're traveling, like, I remember once in, when, oh, yeah. when I was still living in London, uh, I was standing in line in, uh-huh. in a cafe, right? And waiting uh, to get coffee. And then in front of me are two, two girls speaking to each other. And in the beginning, I thought they were speaking Russian, but this is before my Russian journey. Um, and I hear, and I listen really well, and I understood that they were speaking, uh, like, um, Serb, Croatian or, or Bosnian. And, uh, some of my best friends growing up were from Bosnia. And so I've been there multiple times and, and I've, I know a couple of words right now, lots, but as you, uh, as you have mm-hmm. friends and, you know, they, they teach you things and I know how to say like, Hey, how are you doing? And, you know, simple stuff. Right. So I, I say only how you're doing. And they were so happy, right? Because they were like, oh, somebody speaks our language. Oh, can we, <laughs> can we ask you like where, how to get to this and how to get to that? And I was like, oh, I don't know if my, my language is that good, but, but it really helps. As you said, it breaks the ice. Uh, Which you break the ice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. No, definitely. Even if they speak English, if, if that's your first attempt, when they tell you where they're from. Yes. They're like, oh, wow. You know, you know, I'm I'm happy that you did that. Yeah, that's definitely. And I think many people are kind of um, uh, scared. Sometimes, if if you're if you feel how to say assertive about mm-hmm. yourself, I think you say in English, yeah. and you're not scared to make mistakes, not not scared to make a fool out of yourself. Learning languages is a pretty safe environment, yeah. unless you really offend someone. But then you really have to make a mistake with your translation. But it's yeah. pretty safe to to try out your languages with people. Yeah. And usually people will be kind of patient and understand, mm-hmm. oh, he's trying to make an effort uh, and everything. But it really uh, uh, it really helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Even like, I think 
what you said there, like, even if you make a mistake and they laugh, it's good because they're like, all right, you said that oh, yeah. wrong, but we know what you're trying to say or you're making an effort, <laughs> right? And, and then yes. some people will, might, yes. might find this like uh, crazy. But even though I grew up speaking Somali, my language skills were not that good until I went back there after like 20 years of civil war. And I went back there for the first time and I started speaking to people. They all laughed at me. Like, where the hell did you learn the language? And it's, <laughs> it's a very, it's a, it's a culture where they, where it's very normal, which is very similar to Dutch, where you're very direct and make fun of each other, mm-hmm. which is a term of endearment, right? Oh, really? Um, right. So I think also <laughs> that's why Dutch people have an easier time maybe speaking languages because you learn, you learn to be very direct and very not scared to, to speak and to express yourself. No, I think if, if you, if you expose, if you're exposed until a certain age to foreign languages, even if you don't speak those languages, you're, I think it's until 10, like I said, I'm very horrible at numbers, but until 10 or 12, your brain is just a sponge. And if you're even exposed to other languages, even if you don't speak them fluently, mm-hmm. uh, your brain as a young kid is going to accept, okay, so there's different structures in languages. Yeah. A verb doesn't necessarily need to be there. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't need to be here. And then that helps you a lot at a later stage when you're 30, 20, or 40, yeah. like you and I, uh, <laughs> learning la- uh, Russian. I mean, you're, you're 25, right? No, no, no. 26. No, no. Uh, it, it makes it. I wish. <laughs> My knees aren't. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, it makes it, if your brain is already trained to accept that there's different grammatical structures, it makes mm-hmm. it a lot easier. That's why. And I think there's an over-reliance on, uh, on English for Dutch nationals, when they go yeah. abroad, they just, oh, that's fine. I've got my international language passport, which is English. I can open every door. That's right. Yeah. That's correct. Uh, but sometimes you're going to have to go a bit further than there, and you don't need to be fluent. Uh, just a couple of words, sentences, is just it's just going to help you. And then it's always okay, right, to switch back to English yeah. afterwards. Yeah. That's all good. But you did the effort to just to show a few things, saying, hey, hello, or yeah. thanks for inviting me to your home, or whatever it is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Breaking the ice. No, no, absolutely. And uh, I will tell like a one, I think kind of like a funny side story. When I was mm-hmm. a kid, uh, I think I was four years old, I left Somalia and I ended up, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but I ended up living with my aunt and uncle in Iran for two years because the civil war started in Somalia and I was kind of like stuck there because my parents couldn't, Travel or not directly travel. Yeah. So I lived for two years in Iran, uh, from ages, from age four to, or five to seven, something like that, before I got to the Netherlands. And I spoke Farsi, even though I went to an international school. Um, I learned wow. to speak Farsi because I had friends there. And I've re- I don't think I've ever talked about this, but yeah. So I spoke Farsi and I came to the Netherlands and I remember speaking Farsi with other Iran kids. And awesome. because I learned Dutch, uh, I went to school, I forgot completely the language, right? However, when I hear people speaking today, I can make out what they're saying just because of, you know, those two years as a kid that, that I've heard the language and I spoke it. And probably that should have been the first language for me to learn back again, but uh, yeah, I never got to it, but it's interesting, like how you can pick up languages as a kid and like forget as easily. Yeah, and and reactivate the brain. I mean, if you if you were to go to a place tomorrow or a cafe or for a few days in a row or go to Iran and 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 be exposed to language, you'd pick it up within no time. I mean, I grew up learning ja- uh, German as a secondary language. Mm-hmm. I wasn't very good at it usually, but when we did go to Germany, we usually go to Germany to do. Uh, uh, parachuting and everything for about two or three weeks in a row, you know, after a day or two, it gets activated, mm-hmm. and then that that section of the brain gets gets uh, is, is given a nudge, and then and then yeah, you start because it's been dormant for some time, it gets activated again. Yeah, uh, it's actually pretty interesting how that works. Yeah, now. very. I think a lot of people listening to the podcast are like, "Hey guys, why are you going to talk about OSINT and intelligence and all that good stuff?" Um, so I think maybe good to to get into that. So now you teach OSINT courses in Chinese and and Arabic and how is Mm -hmm. 
I mean, outside of like the differences in, in how internet works in China and in the rest of the world, what differences do you see? What, what common things you see? And like, how has that journey been? And what are your, your experiences like? Right. So I never know how to phrase it when I post things online, but it's, it's teaching Chinese in English to people who don't speak Chinese and some do speak Chinese. So I, I do have sometimes people that are very skilled with it, with Chinese that join my courses. So I designed this course really for people that don't speak Chinese at all and want to be able to find information online using Chinese sources or the internet in general on the language on how to find that. Because if we stick to looking at English language sources or Dutch language sources for, for you and I, for example, uh, we're going we're gonna to be in an echo chamber. Right? Finding the best intelligence is found in a a local language. And I'm looking for information about the Middle East. Um, yeah, I'm going to find some stuff in English, but I'm more interested in finding stuff in a, from a local uh, local country, right? Uh, the common narrative is often that people need to be a native speaker to find information, right? And what you often see in NGOs or even banks or, or governments is that there'll be some specialists that grew up with the language or have learned the language, and they're going to be they're going to be given nudges all the time saying, hey, I found something in Russian, help me out. Or, hey, I found something in Chinese. This is, I don't speak that language. I can't, I can't analyze that. I can't find that. Or if you're a researcher or a journalist, right? The, the whole courses uh, we've designed with Chinese, Russian, and Arabic is that you can uh, find information on your own. Uh, in, in that way, actually, you know, freeing some time for those people that really are good at the language to go a bit more in-depth with that research. Whether you work in a team or alone, the focus of these language programs in open source intelligence are really catered to people who don't speak the language and want to be able to find information on in a certain language. And in general, it's the same technique, the same uh, strategic techniques you apply on OSINT. Lots of keywords. We emphasize that a lot. Lots of Boolean operators, advanced search techniques. But all languages have a small specific uh, differences. And comparatively, I would say that Chinese is probably one of the easiest languages to search online with because of the, the simplicity of the language in terms of grammar, structure. There are difficult aspects of the Chinese language. Writing characters is difficult. Getting the tones right, it's a tonal language, but these don't apply to open source intelligence. There's a lot of information you can find by typing Chinese. And actually, on the very first day of our courses, selfless promotion there, uh, shameless promotion, uh, we actually teach people how to type in Chinese, write in Chinese, which helps you search in Chinese and find information in Chinese. And um, so I did that for about a year, giving that uh, the Chinese course. And then since last year, I was given a nudge by, by my boss asking me, hey, didn't you mention you spoke Arabic? Could you maybe make a course on Arabic? And I thought, no, nah, I can't do that. And then I thought, or maybe I could. So I opened PowerPoint and uh, started working on the Arabic language again, which really brought me, which was great because it really brought me back into the culture, opened the history books again, the language books again, and just explored how to, to search in Arabic. Because as you probably know, everything is from right to left, especially online, your whole interface and, brow and browsers yep. uh, switch sides. But it's um, the whole courses we have is to make it usable for people that have only grown up with one language. And we do get Arabic speakers or native speakers of Russian or Arabic and Chinese in our courses. And for me, it's always a, how to say that in English, a moment whenever a native speaker or a near native speaker says, hey, I actually didn't know that about my language to find stuff online. That's always kind of a, um, how to say. It's a great compliment. It's 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 a compliment, but it's a reassure. It's more reassuring thinking. Oh, they didn't waste their time yeah. listening to me talk about their own language. I think the first people I had last year, or the very first people I had with when I taught the Chinese course, there were a couple of people that were really, really skilled in Chinese language, and I thought, oh, they're going to waste their time. Are they going to learn anything? And they did. And last year, lo and behold, same with Arabic. The first few people I had in my course, I think some of them were journalists from the Middle East. And I thought, you know, my Arabic is rusty. I can read and write it, but am I going to teach these guys anything? Right. And they actually said, Hey, I didn't know that. I didn't know I could use my language on a browser in such a way to find information. So 
That's very cool. Uh, it, it validates. Uh, it validates. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's good fun. And um, tips, like for you, like let's say Chinese, you know, and are there any tips? I know if people really want to learn how to do it, they they should do your course. But there are things that that you say, hey, this makes it different, and and it would be good to like prepare yourself this way. Yeah. So uh, once a year, uh, we teach for free. Uh, we do a workshop on how to search in Arabic, Chinese, and Russian for free for people, NGOs, students, people that don't have the budget for the whole course. So that's pretty cool. They can do that. We teach that about uh, once every year. And otherwise, you know, even if I, if we, O-centers will say, be careful with Google Translate. It, it's not that bad. At the very minimum, it's going to be it's going to be giving you the gist of a story but what i would say is with any translation tool or any tool or news outlet from any country grain of salt critical thinking uh thinking hey does this sound weird that's probably because it is right mm -hmm. when you uh, i always use the menu example with uh with google translate uh, you and i notice because we've traveled a lot other people's as well you always read funny menus abroad right i saw funny menus yeah. uh, in my own country in netherlands i saw funny hilarious menus translated in in other other countries where you think oh, okay this was google <laughs> translated right it's it, it's funny right yeah. it's less funny when it's a political document yes. or whenever one of the mainstream media outlets just overly relies on google translate Absolutely. and just takes everything it spits out as 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 uh as the truth you have to be critical if it sounds weird that's probably because it is one tool i will give If you don't want to learn a language, but you want to work with a language, and this is just one of the tools we use, it's free. Uh, it's called DeepL Translate, D-E-E-P-L Translate uh, .com. It works the same as Google Translate, but just works a lot better. It gives you alternatives. and It, it will really give you better translations than uh, Google Translate. But we live in a day and age that we're lucky to have all these tools. We can translate anything. If I read it, If I find a document in Somali online, I'll be able to translate it using Google Translate. But I will also use, I think, the most important tool there is out there, critical thinking and being and, and, and going the extra mile to really be sure what is being said. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll go to a, a someone that really speaks the language and ask them, hey, I think this is the part where I have trouble with the language. Can you verify this for me? And there's tons to find, whether it's Chinese, Arabic, or Russian, or other languages, Somali or Farsi. There, there's a lot of information floating on, uh, online. I think it's important to make the effort to search in a foreign language. Like if I want to read about what's being, what's happening in and around China, I'm not, I'm, I'm by default not going to read anything put out there by the West because I already know the narrative of the West vis-a-vis -vis mainstream. The mainstream uh, viewpoint of China from the West, I know that already, right? I'm going to be interested in reading Middle Eastern sources. What, what do they say about you know gas deals with Qatar and China, right? What do South American sources say about the Belt and Road Initiative in South America? I know the North American and Western perspectives. I'm more interested in other languages. Same goes with the Middle East or things happening in, in, in Ukraine, uh, whether Europeans like it or not, there's different perspectives about what's happening in Ukraine, how horrible the world is. The way the Middle East looks at that area is very different than uh, what we read in other places. So, uh, yeah, making the effort, trying to get out of the comfort zone. This is difficult because we live in a day and age where we really want to read things that resonate with us, which we're comfortable with, biases, etc. And going the extra mile to find information in different languages about subjects and uh, Yeah, I'm so happy you said that because I think Ukraine, Russia is a perfect example where, you know, as much as a narrative battle as it is like a physical kinetic battle and there is this like rise now of, um, I had these mm -hmm. discussions with different people where if you look at Russian sources, obviously, you know, there's a different perspective on the Ukrainian sources. There's a, there's a, a different perspective. But uh, in a lot of discourse, and, and, and I will say this, you know, I mean, people, are not, some people are not going to like that I have to, that I say this, but um, almost like dissuaded to show a Russian perspective, right? Uh, I mean, on social media, you get attacked. Mm -hmm. I know the guys that, that do the UA weapons tracker, 
Um, and and I spoke to one of them and and they were like, yeah, in the beginning, we did the UA weapons tracker in English and Russian and I think Ukrainian. And they got lambasted for doing it in Russian. So they stopped doing it, um, mm-hmm. which I think is, you know, sad because I think it's good also for people to speak Russian to see that what's going on in, in Ukraine and get other narratives too. So, and, and with China, I mean, it's, there's so much not known about China and, and getting those mm-hmm. perspectives, I think is, is, is critical. So I think that's, in my opinion, probably the best point you made there, because I remember studying with, um, a, uh, defense analyst, uh, or, uh, defense analyst from Singapore and, uh, work with Singaporean government. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this person was specialized in leadership analysis. Um, and we were talking about that book. Uh, I think you probably heard of it many times, Unrestricted Warfare. That was written by two yeah. Chinese colonels. And mm-hmm. she said to me, do you know that there is a part two? But it's never been translated. And I was like, well, that's a shame. Because part one is kind of like almost similarly used as the quote-unquote Gerasimov doctrine document that uh, right. the now in charge of the general now in charge of the of the Ukrainian uh, the Russian operations in uh, in in Ukraine the chief of the general staff and he wrote this document like musings of of his way of like how he saw warfare right and a lot of people in the west talked about it right. and it was dubbed Gerasimov doctrine it was dubbed like hey this is how Russia is going to operate we've seen now in Ukraine that for all the things that were set for paper, the reality that kind of broke down, right? And and it's very similar with the Chinese unrestricted warfare. If you if you read out of ten uh, ten documents on on Chinese military operations or intelligence operations, if you read it, mm-hmm. that book is referenced, right? But the second one that they did is not referenced. Um, so yeah, it's, I think that's very important. Okay. So courses like yours. That teach you how to search in Chinese and, 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 you know, give you more balanced way of doing the translations, I think are, are mm-hmm. crucial, not just for analysts, right. but for analysts to communicate that to, to policymakers or for, for maybe laymen, uh, that don't know, mm-hmm. you know, how these things are done. I think, yeah, that's, that, that's really, uh, um, definitely. I... Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 definitely. I think that the, OSINT is often perceived as this tool that governments use to find stuff and people with cats on Twitter. I mean, we've saw the, the virologist experts on Twitter and the nowadays we're all strategic tactical military experts on Twitter, of course, but it's just, <laughs> it's not only restricted to, you know what yeah, I mean, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, you've seen yeah. them. You've seen people, people with cats, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People with cats and orange fingers. Um, it's it's not only um it's not only this thing that is used for sneaky stuff it's not it's actually uh used in uh in most aspects of uh of our lives right and there is just a lot to be found in, in different it's funny you mentioned uh singapore because it's actually uh the think tanks in singapore some of the news outlets there are some of the ones actually you know, tell people or advise people to read because they give a, a, a balanced view of what's happening for in this instance, for China as an example, um, that is, that is in some, in many ways, very different than the ones we're used to, right? If I read the local news in the Netherlands about what's happening about with regards to the Belt and Road Initiative in anywhere and everywhere in the world, it's such a big thing. I know, I, I kind of know what the narrative is going to be, right? If I read it from Singapore, it's going to be way more balanced, right? And this applies for all other places uh, as well. Unfortunately, I think we really live in a place where we want the answers quickly. We don't have a lack of resource to get information, but I think it's in the human nature that we're, we're sometimes a bit lazy and we want to keep reading things that kind of fit into our the narratives that we won't be fed, right? Getting out of our comfort zone is difficult, but it's not that hard to find stuff. I think it's more hard to do that, uh, that effort to get out of that comfort zone and, and, and read other uh, stuff in, uh, find content in different languages, culture. Absolutely. 
I mean, I mean, you and I have talked about this outside the podcast, right? That one thing, like my 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 comments against like a lot of these OSIN accounts and OSIN people, and I love them, but I have criticism for them because you know there needs to be a very clear communication on what OSINT is, right? And and yes, open source intelligence, right? Is you know you find the information using all these fancy tools and these clever tools and translations and languages. And then you turn that into intelligence. You add a value to that information, right? Because that that part, the analysis, the writing, the the communicating your findings and, and your judgment, I think there's just not enough. It's not spoken about, especially, and particularly the way you explain it, like people just want to quick, fast, quickest person to get it out you know it fits into my narrative and every time i see like a, i know i'm speaking to the uh to the converted with you but i think this is for the audience for young people that i know listen to this podcast that want to get into this mm-hmm. right um it's not quick right this is as you said many times in this podcast critical thinking it's the biggest thing that is missing in a lot of this discourse about OSINT. And majority of the stuff out there is OSIN. There's no intelligence. It's just open source information. Mm-hmm. It's finding, processing. OSINF with an F. Yeah. You know, and, and not, yeah. not really gaining any like, like assessment or judgment out of it. And that's very important. I know it's, it sounds a little bit like, which this is why I don't really use the term OSINT myself or in our communications with mm-hmm. Great Dynamics because even like clients, and policymakers, they, they turn their nose up. That's for multiple reasons, right? Because of this, but also because people, and we talked about this in, in other podcasts, that there is this fetishization about humans, you know, and secret intelligence and human intelligence. While most questions you can answer with open source intelligence and almost, most problems you can find through that. And so I think there needs to be a more balanced like road. Sorry, I went a little bit on a rant there. No, I think it's good. I think it's important. I, I see some countries that start to implement this in high school teaching. As by, by the way, I, awesome that some schools start to teach people how to use advanced search operas because we we can all search for yeah. a a fantastic uh, tagine recipe, mm-hmm. but finding policy papers written in Korean vis-a-vis other things, or it, it can be simpler. It doesn't need to be with a language. Just searching. Advanced searches, but you don't have to be like a, a wizard with it. it. It's just so important. And what you also, uh, what I think is is also important that we all have this access to a lot of information. Teaching, you know, youngsters or you know, uh, students to critical thinking. How do you do that? This is not something new. This has been taught for a long time. Absolutely. But it's not. Uh, it's not a lack of resources and technology. We, I mean, if you and I would pick up our phone, we would know exactly how much rain there was in millimeters in 2018 in Burundi, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's the ability, I think, and I agree with you with that, is not labeling everything as OSINT, but you know, going the extra mile, finding one, two, three, or four sources, and finding a source which you categorically don't agree with, and just reading it, how painful it is, how 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 uh, how different it is from your your perspective. It is just reading it and getting that full idea, getting all that O synth with an F, gathering that together, mixing it up into into writing something or analyzing something which translates, which ends up into a, an O synth with a T product. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. You 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 summarized it better than I could. So thank you for that. No, no. Maybe I get a little bit too too passionate about it, but at the end of the podcast, I I always ask people, and it doesn't have to be anything related to our job or the work that we do. What are you watching? What are you reading at the moment? It it can be something like just for fun, uh, or, or or something about you know the industry that we are in, or something you're looking forward to. Because yeah, I, I've really got really great tips from speaking to people like yourself. So. It's also something that I really enjoy. So I don't watch anything because I look at screens uh, during the day. So I don't want to look at a screen in the evening Fair. in my downtime. If I do look at a screen, I'm a super boring guy. 
I listen to old music and I listen to, I, I look old movies over and over again. I, uh, you can, <laughs> I can, I can, I can, I can recite the whole first three, uh, Star Wars movies. I'm a big fan of Mel Brooks movies over and over again. In terms of reading, uh, I, I, I don't read anything work related as funny as it sounds. Um, because just because I'm so much exposed to, you know, the, the OSINT and, and politics and stuff like that, I read. Um, and again, it's going to sound repetitive, but I, I, I read, I reread, uh, I read new books, but at the same time, I'll read an old book at the same time. So I usually read two or three books at the same time. I've just reread The Avoidable War, written by Kevin Rudd, uh, about uh, the competition between China and the US. Very interesting. This is work related, but otherwise, I'm rereading, I do this about once every two or three years. I'm rereading. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's, uh, which was filmed uh, in the 1980s, I think. Awesome movie. It's, it's, got, it's got sadness. It's got victory in it. It's got passion. It's fun. And one thing I've started doing this year, I've started rereading all the books that I read when I was 15, 16, 17 year old, trying to find my place in the world on uh, in the about the military right i i I remember vividly the perspectives i had or the things i had in mind when i read these autobiographies especially what actually only about you know um small unit tactics in vietnam how people operated in the jungle and everything and i reread them now it's, it's just it's great to revisit the way i used to think about these things 23 years ago and and looking at it from a different perspective now, it's it's pretty fun to reread an old book. I would uh, I would uh, give that as a tip to any other people. And of course, check out the the Mel Brooks movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, when you said old movies, I didn't know you. I, I didn't think you would go that far back. But yeah, I'll, <laughs> you're showing your age a little bit. You're making you're making me feel older now, Ahmed. <laughs> you look oh, very shit. young, so that's your know, benefit. I would never think when you said. You went into the military in 1997. I was like, you're lying because you look way younger than that. I'm being oh, real. I'm not even like yeah. blowing smoke. I mean oh. it. I mean it. So, you know, you, you are. <laughs> I'm feeling the smoke. <laughs> There's some little, long distance smoke there. Um, but all right. Um, <laughs> like um, anything that any like last tips, tricks, comments, views that you would like to share, promotions. I do. I do. Uh, we've been talking a lot about languages and about me and you a lot, but I, I know there's a lot of people. I get lots of messages from people saying, Hey, how do you, how do you make it in OSINT? Uh, find something you're passionate about. Uh, we in OSINT, I think we all need to be jack of all trades a bit generalists, okay. but I think it's important to find your sweet spot. Yeah. For me, it was languages. It might be environmental protection. It might be. Other things like uh, anti-human trafficking is very important, right? These things, find a thing you're super passionate about and just capitalize on that and just learn all you can. Learn if you can program, if you're good at that, if this is a language you do speak, go for it and learn how you can apply that to anti-human uh, trafficking, maybe uh, uh, conservation, energy, global warming, anything there is and do that. And just and don't be scared to to reach out to people that, are that have been, you know, um, strong players in the industry, whether it's OSINT with geolocation, reach out to those, right? There's some great people out there that are really skilled at it. If this is something you find interesting, you know, if you're a good OSINTer, you're going to find them online. You're going to find a way to reach out to them, find their email address, call them up and just hit them up, right? People, uh, I mean, I certainly don't mind being, being, being sent messages to, to, to help people. I know I didn't know everything before. You can't, right? So reach out to people. And there's so many resources online. There's tutorials, there's, there's GitHub. There's a lot to find yourself to self-educate you and then just uh, um, be proficient in the open source intelligence field. Definitely. Yeah. It's the wild west. Let's put it that yeah. way. I, I really see it as a term I've been using for about a few weeks. It is the wild west it and it's uh, it find a place you like. Claim it, put your flag on that, and just uh, strive in it. It is. It's. It's. It's really, and probably that's why there's so much differences in quality, differences in viewpoints, differences in execution. You know, it is really like a period in time, as you said, to 
to like really distinguish distinguish yourself from the um, from the pack. The amount of people, I, I I swear, if you could count the amount of people that had OSIN in their bio today, compared to let's say five years ago, it would be a very stark difference. So, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I, I really I echo everything you said, and, and uh, I agree completely. But it's always been there, Ahmed, right? Oh, Sint has always yeah, been yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Starting new. Uh, like, like my colleague says, the most powerful uh, OSINT tool there is is a library card, yeah. right? Yep. You're going to have to read. Whether it's beyond a screen or in a book, read, read, read uh, as much as you can. Become a subject matter expert about things. Yeah. Just, uh, keep reading. And then keep reading. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then repeat. And, and the thing also is like, what is it? Uh, like, I think uh, it's an it's a intelligent scholar who said it. I think it was William Agrell, which is a Swedish scholar, one of the more, more well-known intelligence studies scholars. And um, he, he has a quote where he says, you know, if everything is intelligence, nothing is intelligence. And that's exactly the same for OSINT. If everything is OSINT, nothing is, right? So um, just, you know, look at... That's interesting. You know, look at governments, look at what everybody's doing, you know, and... You know, try to find your structure and the way you do things, and and I think you can uh, you can go very far in this field. There's some brilliant people out there, and you know, I, and definitely I think you're you're one of them. And uh, and uh, some will be on this podcast, some haven't been on this podcast. And yeah, I really um, really appreciate you you doing this and and uh, and joining me. And uh, it's always lovely to have a fellow Dutchman on the podcast, which is the first time. I don't know how many. I know there's in Ocean. There's there's a, a good number of Ocean people. Um, yeah, like the guys from Ocean Curious and uh, Michael Hoffman. Yep, definitely. Nico, Nico, definitely. Micah is a great guy. So there's a couple of people in. Um, yeah, so well represented, small in stature, big in deeds, and uh, yeah, thank you again so much. I really appreciate it, and hope to speak to to you soon on the podcast. If there's anything, I please would love to have you on if you start something new or develop something new uh, I always feel free to to reach out awesome Ahmed I, I appreciate the opportunity to be invited on this podcast I, I learned a lot today from you and uh, that's always it's always interesting to learn new things so thanks so much for your, the opportunity yeah, thank you I, I think it. this is the longest podcast we've ever done so far <laughs> I'm looking at the time now I forgot but uh, yeah again thank you so much uh, for everybody listening at home if you made it this far, thank you guys so much for, for joining us, for sticking with us, for all your nice comments. I read them, uh, the emails that you guys have been sending. Uh, I really appreciate it. And if you like what we're doing, you know, give us feedback. You know, uh, if we deserve it, give us five stars because it makes it easier for people to find us. Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, maybe Apple, iTunes, and Spotify, whatever. We are also now on YouTube, guys. So check us out. All the old episodes and the new ones in season two will be on there. This episode will be in season two. So uh, looking forward to to seeing what you guys think of this podcast. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it again. Thank you for for being on, Skip, and and for everybody else. You know, I'll see you guys soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks.